MCU.html Reassembled is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, media, TV, comics, music, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Flippity thwack, it's the Miggity Mac, it's the Mac Daddy, Super Nico here, bringing you the HTML.MCU backslash, I said it backward, realness, and I'm bringing it to you with my one and only co-host, co-pilot, and amazing on the one and twos, DJ Kevo. Yo, 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 what up, what up? And we're here to talk about our boys Tommy Holly and Jakey G. So... I think one of the things about this is that every time they drop one of their fat beats, it's always with a little bit of mystery. And that made it super hard to rap about the last record, yo. I think what Nico's trying to say is that our last episode was a little bit jumbled by the mystery that is Mysterio's debut in the MCU. Jive talking like a BG. Sure, also that. See, the thing about this movie is... The first two-thirds of it are so severely affected by everything that happens at the end that it's really hard not to let that affect your judgment upon reflection of it. For example, the scene that we come into immediately following the misadventure with Edith and the drones. You're giving me a case of Spider Night Fever here, DJ Kevo. Boogie down on the disco round. DJ, save my life tonight. I'll do what I can. So we move from the horrific bus incident to Prague, an unexpected stop on this Euro trip. One night in Bangkok. So we jump cut from a scene of Peter with his fellow students to a scene of Peter being berated for the misuse of his classes by Nick Fury. But the thing is, he's not being berated by Nick Fury. He's really being berated by Talos in Nick Fury disguise carrying out a mission. And knowing that tidbit from the very end of the credits of this film completely changes everything about this scene. And I think that actually is the bigger issue that we had trouble talking about the actual film because of. Seriously, to drop the disco jive for about a second here, one of the things that makes this movie really tough that gives it multiple levels upon rewatch is the reveals and the deceptions overwhelm the plot of the film in a lot of ways. I try and think about what this film would have been before the snap, and so much of the movie stands in the same place because so much of the film is undone. There's no significant lasting consequences from the body of the film. In fact, nearly every major consequence of this film is established by the two post-credits tags. When we initially imagined doing this episode, we thought it would be a single episode, and that's in part because Spider-Man Far From Home on a surface read, is a really basic superhero movie. But upon second watch, the number of things that are completely changed and recontextualized by the number of reveals that come later in the film do a lot to make me scratch my head. I really did like it, and I still like it. In fact, I think the things I liked, I might even like more now. 
That said, some of the things that bothered me bother me a lot more now. And a good portion of the likability of this film rests on the lovability of Tommy Holly, Zendaya, who needs no nickname, and Jakey G. One of my concerns is that Ned is being ramped up to be collateral damage. We've all already seen Gwen Stacy die, so it wouldn't be weird to... Actually, no, no one saw Gwen Stacy die because nobody went to see The Amazing Spider-Man 2. But I think Ned is a likely candidate for offing. I think it's going to be an early season of Project Runway and he's going to get offed. I'm really concerned. You know, I would hazard to say that it's more than just the credit scene that affect your perception of the film. It's a lot of revelations from the latter half of the film most of them though do come from the last 20 minutes or so finding out where both may and happy stand on their little tryst affects the way that you view their relationship throughout the entire film finding out that mj does like peter back affects how you view their interactions throughout everything and you know earlier than the last 20 minutes but still after the first hour of the film finding out everything about beck completely changes everything that you're viewing about that character even in the scene that we're talking about right here beck makes repeated comments sniping at fury saying that you know peter doesn't want to be here and you roped him into this and reinforcing in peter's head the fact that he doesn't want to be here and that he does want to be an irresponsible kid to push him toward giving beck the glasses there's two major characters in this scene who are being duplicitous really three if you count maria unfortunately she doesn't talk very much in this film so I almost didn't include her. But yes, she is also Talos's wife, Soren. So she's not who she says she is either. And that's something that you don't find out until after the end credits. Peter has no idea any of this. Still doesn't know about Fury and Maria Hill. He still thinks it was them the entire time. Only we, the audience, know that Fury is off on space beach vacation. You know, in the original cut of the film, I heard it was going to end with Fury and Maria Hill at a French coffee shop. (laughs) While Carol flies by in the distance, burning like a, I don't know, some kind of bird that burns, whatever you call those. McCaw! McCaw! But no, seriously, I wonder if... Nick Fury would have played this situation differently, or if he really is rusty post-snap the way that Talos as Fury claims, and that's why he's on vacation. I have to assume there's some kind of plan, because this was like a big thing to just drop in out of nowhere and have mean nothing going forward. It's just, it's frustrating. I want to know. But, and I also want to know, would it have been different if it had been Nick Fury seasoned shield agent and espionage specialist would he have seen through beck right away oh rooftop cuddles yeah i'm not exactly a shipper of this pair but i imagine the scene where mysterio flies up to comfort peter after peter pouts when furies mean to him it probably means a lot to people who would enjoy that sort of thing peter parker pouted pitter patter on the rooftop plop i like alliteration get used to it i also 
So, like, this is another one of those places where knowing that it's all holograms and that shit, like, it's really confusing to me. So, can Beck fly or did a hologram just fly up next to Peter on the roof? Is a hologram sitting next to Peter throughout this entire scene? I guess I'm kind of saying if Peter had, like, tried to go in for a hug like he did with Mr. Stark in spider-man homecoming would he have just fallen right through and would all of this plan have fallen apart immediately so here's what i have to assume mysterio is like right there with a drone in place and every time peter goes to lean forward a puff of air just kind of goes and he's kind of booped peter in the head for the record he smacked me on the forehead with his palm that didn't translate onto audio nico if i may it was a boop so then if peter keeps doing it i feel like he would get hit in the head with the drone. I'm gonna fucking come over there because that was a smack. That was a bop. So, so now I desperately need Mysterio to get a sidekick, the big bopper. I want him to come back. I love this character. And this scene, this interaction with Peter is really fun and interesting even after you know that he's manipulating him because it really comes across that Beck does have like some small affection for Peter in his own sociopathic way. So it would be really interesting to see Quentin Beck continue as the anti-Tony Stark antagonist to Tom Holland's Peter Parker. So the kids are supposed to go to this Prague Light Festival and instead they have to go to the opera and like all the kids are really sad about it because kids don't like opera. Wait, they're going to a Prague Rock Festival? I'm going to let you sit in that. This is where we get that scene between MJ and Peter where he says, you look really pretty. And she says, therefore, I have value that they used in all of the trailers. And woo, like it's that thing that they made fun of in Wreck-It Ralph Wrecks the Internet where they used the scene in the trailer. So when you see it, you're kind of like, ah, they said the thing. And that's actually a thing I've always wondered about with some of these movies. I feel like too many of these lines are sort of inserted for exactly that reason. They feel like, I don't know, they feel like trailer trash and I don't love it. Especially because later trailers for this movie gave even bigger and better trailer trash. The moment of her soon to come saying that she knows he's Spider-Man on the bridge was then used in trailers. And it's like, oh, now the whole you're kind of pretty thing doesn't seem as major in their relationship, does it? Okay. I enjoy some amount of secret identity hijinks, but I'm really glad that this movie is really the only one that we are probably going to be getting for Peter and MJ in any way, because it gets to be too much for me. And that's why I could never watch that British show Merlin the entire show was him not telling Arthur that he was Merlin apparently and like oh my god five seasons of that that sounds horrible to me I think it's so much cooler to have friends who are in on your secret identity I guess that's because I was raised on Buffy I don't know so Peter has to run out and Brad gives Peter the finger before he goes as he puts his arm around MJ in case we weren't 100% sure that he's a bad guy he is and we get the little black stealth suit that's tight around the old web shooter. That was a very candid thing for him to say, honestly. Like, that was inappropriate. I also feel like it was surprisingly sexualized. Like, I get that you're saying it was inappropriate, but it was specifically implicit of something that I feel like they work very hard to keep Spider-Man and Tom Holland clear of. Right? He only gets one shirtless scene in this entire movie, and it's like 
three seconds, and it is entirely gratuitous, but we're not quite there yet. First, we have to have Magmonster appear and attack. I like the use of the elementals. In a lot of ways, I feel like they got the best use they could out of Spider-Man's sort of underutilizable, but it very expansive rogues gallery being able to use hydro man and lava 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 man is super great and i feel like it does work out in their advantage but this is the point at which the movie starts moving a little too fast for my taste too fast you say once peter transfers control of edith over to beck it's just sort of like thing in your face 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 and like the non-stop things in your face like it's just getting hit in the head with a banana over and over again i just feel like oh that mislead oh that mis that mislead that mis oh that mislead oh i think i was more taken aback by saying that it started moving fast because i hadn't thought of that scene coming so soon but you know looking at my notes the fight scene with the giant lava monster it's molten man in the comics by the way i don't know what they call i don't think they call it that in this movie but you know lava man is like only five minutes pretty short especially for a fight against a giant lava beast this is where we get betty and ned coining the term night monkey i love it i love night monkey being a european crime fighter i hope like we continue to see like night monkey stuff going on in the background of this and other franchises that would be fantastic i think night monkey is one of the best takeaways from the film it gives you kind of a cute little sub brand of spider-man stuff that's gonna work nicely for disney and it added a little bit of levity to a movie that was otherwise kind of heartbreaking it did. There's a lot of heartbreaking stuff over a very schmaltzy, happy-go-lucky veneer in this film. And the bar scene is kind of a really amazing metaphor for that. You know, the scene where Beck and Peter have their little heart-to-heart. And the first time I watched this for like a few seconds, I was like, no one's questioning them sitting there in that getup. And then I was like, oh, right, Prague is having that light festival. Everyone's dressed up that's actually i you know but no the conversation they're having is absolutely a violation of security no 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 no. i really still have a problem with it and like I, yeah prog party party carnival festival costume all hang out all but doll. unfortunately that just does reinforce the notion that peter would give up these glasses without even thinking about it he just assumes that it's the right thing to do it's uh it's really embarrassing for peter though when you think about it every single real person in that bar is like watching him this entire scene Rewatch this movie and think about that every single person in that room who is a real person is aware of peter and heard him say that he wants to kiss a girl but that's even what I mean when I said earlier that that's why this went to two episodes mid-discussion, because there's so much to unpack that you probably don't see on the first watch. Yeah, like Beck spends a lot of this scene undermining Peter. He tells him he looks stupid in the Edith glasses. And it initially comes off like playful ribbing, but when you rewatch it, it does just undermine his confidence enough. Something that took me by surprise when I rewatched that I hadn't remembered fully is that Peter is the one who comes to the conclusion that he should hand over the Edith glasses based on the card. Beck doesn't say anything about the card when he does his, like, three-minute-long exposition monologue 
about who these people are. So I don't know if they wrote it or if it actually was from Tony. And that's just Peter coincidentally interpreting it in a way that that he would want to hand the glasses over to Beck. But that was something that really caught my attention this time upon watching. It's Peter who says, you know, that that note meant it was my job to pick the next Tony Stark, not to be the next Tony Stark, and I pick you. I really think that he benefits far too much from the magic of coincidence in a way that is so irritating, especially in the rewatch. In fact, I think that might have been one of the weakest things about rewatching this film. How much just magically goes Jakey G's way. And the exposition scene is specifically really long. Like, okay, first of all, Peter just takes off after giving glasses and like, that's it. Goodbye. Take these nuclear weapon launchers, person from another dimension. Uh, fine. But then the illusion breaks and I, I wasn't exaggerating. It's three full minutes from when Beck starts his speech. It's like just a few seconds shy that he gives his whole toast and his speech explaining who all of these people are. A box of scraps! I can't tell you people how thrilling that was for us. We could not have planned that better ourselves. It was so exciting to see Ralphie from A Christmas Story return for this movie. How random. That's like the fact that Mercedes Mc... That's like the fact that Mercedes McNabb is the only person to be in both the unaired pilot of Buffy and the series finale of Angel. Like, this random character who then you give significance to in a weird way. Like, all of it. Just stunned. Stunned. I also want more of a backstory on Cooterman because all he gets credit on is coming up with the multiverse backstory. Like, is that his only job? Later we see him feeding lines to Quentin Beck and, oh, he's the bus driver on the London Bridge that takes them on their bus ride. That's it. Who is this guy and what is his area of expertise that all he does is writing backstories and bus driving? What did he do for Stark Industries? Who are some of these weird people, this motley crew of disgruntled employees? Kutler Blurger is actually a guy who had been hired to write Tony Stark's biography and then he wanted to name it Heart of Iron. So he got demoted to bus driver and he's real bitter. Demoted to bus driver from film writer. That's what you just said? I don't think I iron stuttered. Okay. So we cut back to the teen portion of this film. Uh, I love J.B. Smoove's recurring fear of witches throughout this movie. It is so random that he is terrified of witches haunting him in Europe. I love this character. And then we get some adorable PD and MJ stuff. The I am Spider-Man. No, no, I'm not. Scene. They have just such amazing chemistry. I want to see them do so many things together. I know Men in Black International didn't do well, but can we please, please still get a sequel that has Chris Hemsworth, Tessa Thompson, Tom Holland, and Zendaya, and their senior agents training junior agents? Like, I don't care if it costs a million dollars. We spent so much money on stupid things. Give me it. I want it. I think if that movie only cost a million dollars, they'd make it yesterday. Either way, I really hope that Zendaya continues, like, as long as Tom Holland is playing Peter Parker. Especially because she's not 
marry Jane Watson. We don't have to question whether or not they can get married, break up, blah, blah, blah. They can always just break up naturally from being teenagers and be friends. She's an amazing character and there's so much you could do with an original character like that. Plus, I just love the fact that she accuses him of being a male escort. So we fall into a plot contrivance of her pressing a button on a thing that she stole from a crime scene and showing a hologram that just happens to be queued up and play when you hit a button. That's, you know, totally not a flaw in their evil plan. It is one of the hardest parts of this film for a film that rests on Mysterio succeeding based on such bizarre, unthinkable odds that all line up so perfectly. The only reason Spider-Man catches him is the same. So I don't put that on these characters. I put that on the writers. I'm just glad that it happens pretty quickly after he hands over the glasses and that there isn't some sort of like lingering thing. A lot of Captain America Winter Soldier was Steve not knowing who to trust and who to turn to. Peter finds out he fucks up pretty quickly. And then we get a cute scene of Peter changing into his costume and Ned and MJ commiserating over being sidekicks. But they both seem to be into it for totally different reasons. Ned just wants to help and MJ just wants to help with dead bodies. Right, I can respect that girl. We see Beck find out that one of the hologram projectors is missing, and I feel like this scene is almost a meta homage to actual mocap filming with him walking around in an actual mocap suit, and I feel like that's really fun. I also love that Beck threatens Reva, like the same guy who Stain threatened in Iron Man. Like, this poor incompetent dude, how does he keep getting dragged in to these horrible plans? I find... The scene in which Beck is just suddenly a supervillain, super predictable. He's just got unlimited power, so suddenly he's a bad guy. It's a lot. Yeah, and it's again one of the ways in which this film is completely different in the back half from what it is in the opening. This is where Peter is picked up by the double fake Fury, who he thinks is real Fury, but is actually a hologram of Fury, but either way wouldn't be real Fury because neither of them have met real Fury because real Fury is in space. So you're saying this is a pseudo-scroll double-fake fury? Yes. Yes, I am. You're telling me that this is a half-human hologram? I feel like we're starting to write a song. Illusions, Michael, is the name of the game for this point of the film on. I really knew what I was getting into with Mysterio. It's not a question. The character is about illusions and deceptions and a lot of stage makeup, but it did not translate to an overall enjoyable end of film i really enjoyed all of the psychedelic stuff that kind of reminded me of stuff from captain marvel and dr strange but on the whole i found myself sort of like mm, on most of the climax of this film i really loved all the illusions and i think my biggest qualm with the first half of the film being him masquerading as someone else is that we didn't get more of it i think they were really breathtaking the Marvel New York City skyline snow globe and transporting Peter through his costumes and I loved the bits where you could see the real world starting to poke through the illusion when Peter would you know pull a crane from the actual construction site down and you'd get this little crack in the illusion like it was a lot of really cool fun interesting stuff unfortunately it is not the only Spider-Man movie to come out this year so I don't think it holds a candle overall to everything that we got out of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And I wonder if seeing more of that might have enhanced this film a little bit more. But, you know, it's not really entirely fair to compare an animated film to a live action one either. And Mysterio is such a different villain than Kingpin. 
So much of this movie rests on Mysterio is now a crazy person with illusion tech that he is using to confuse the city. I don't love how this all comes together. See, and I even like how it comes together, but it's so disconnected from the first half of the film that it feels alien here. I think the ruse is pretty clever. I think making Peter believe that he is out of the illusion and using that against him again is pretty clever and interesting and i did not exactly see that train coming i figured beck was backing him into getting hit by something but goddamn, he got hit by a train i feel like that's almost an allusion to spider-man 2 from i don't remember 2003 you don't think it's a reference to dark phoenix so then peter wakes up in a jail cell with some very friendly football hooligans in the Netherlands. It's a very quaint little sequence. I'm not even going to try and say what the actual full name of the area is. I didn't even write it down to bother trying because I would just be horrible at it. I actually thought this was just a time by. I feel like it really should have gone from the confrontation with Beck here to the confrontation at the end, but they were looking to stretch for time. Well, I like the sequence with Happy. I love him calling. I love the I messed up. I need a ride. It's so teen. It's adorable. I would have appreciated it before. He should have gone to Happy immediately following the stuff with MJ. Well, I think he was picked up by Fury, though. So I think Beck as Fury just got to him first. I just mean from a narrative storytelling point of view, the fights with Beck are just sort of generic because there's too many of them all together. Mm, okay, okay, okay. I get what you're saying. Regardless of where it was placed, I think it's a really lovely scene and I think it has a lot of great stuff from Tom Holland that is amazing from a young man who is in five movies that have grossed over a billion dollars before he turned 23. And it makes me root for the character even more than ever. After he yells at Happy, he apologizes and says I shouldn't be yelling. He's such a polite young man. And it really makes me want to come back for more. That he is fun like Tony Stark, but moralistic like Captain America. I also think this is the scene where the audience gets to know he is the new Tony Stark. Even if Peter's unsure, even if the internals are unsure at the end of the film, the people watching, the audience, understands now he is Tony Stark. There's enough that harkens back to the first movie, and I think that's why it was important to get Box of Scraps! Because by bringing in Box of Scraps, your brain is already set to Iron Man 1, They don't need to do too much to configure you to seeing Peter as the new Tony. You know, and that's why I think I would disagree with Kevin Feige saying that this is the third part of the Infinity War trilogy that this brings those three films full circle because I think that Spider-Man Far From Home then is more of an epilogue to the Infinity Saga as a whole and the 23 films as a whole leading us into the next era of whatever the Marvel Universe is going to be. There are things that are follow-ups from the Infinity War and Endgame but really it's about so much more than that too. But then Peter says things like, oh, I love Led Zeppelin, and I just cringe. Why do you say things like that, Peter? Because, you know, Zillennials don't understand old things. Yeah, I guess. But right before that, they play the Avengers theme as the suit factory in the rear of the private jet is being revealed. And I think that that is wonderful and adorable. So we go from Peter regrouping and building himself a brand new Spidey suit 
to his classmates being kidnapped by one of the uh, what do we call this cavalcade of nerds is that fine the cavalcade of nerds cooter cooterman is kidnapping them and brad tries to call out peter for being shady and it completely fails and i love that flash is even the one to agree with mj about photographing people in the bathroom being weird again it's kind of a fun place for this movie to go but the humor is a little risque there and i think it's really interesting that they're allowing that into the spider-man franchise and hopefully this is the last that we see of brad so the clock is ticking down on spider-man far from home and beck initiates his final plan a final devastating terrorist attack uh, against london with a fake elemental built out of all of the elementals which he will use to kill spider-man's friends thinking that they know who he is in the original version of this that was going to be the scrolls but at the last second they found out that it was going to be too similar to another film coming out that summer so they changed it i get what you're doing but then they still had scrolls so ah! There's a real quick Power Rangers and Voltron reference if you pay attention when they're talking about the giant elemental monster, though. JB Smoove says they're forming together like Power Rangers, and Martin Starr is like, you're thinking of Voltron, and I love these characters. Can we get some sort of, like, Midtown High Disney Plus TV show? Probably not. We can't, can we? <sighs> it's fine. So the attack continues, and I love that the Riva guy is telling Beck not to worry about drones breaking formation as Peter drops into the fray. He's like, it's probably nothing. And Beck is like, no, I have to look. And yeah, it turns out that it's fucking Spider-Man coming to kick your butt. And I'm just glad the line of dialogue wasn't like, probably just a bug. Yeah, no, it really could have been something like that. And it wasn't. And that's, that is a small mercy. I also really enjoyed the interactions with Happy and the teens. I work with Spider-Man, not for Spider-Man. That was a really great use of his character and putting him in the line of fire in a way that is believable for a character like him. Plus, MJ picking up that mace is absolutely iconic, and I love Betty being clever and helping with the distraction. I think it's kind of dumb that his confession is I'm in love with Spider-Man's aunt. He really should have said Peter Parker's because like, that's going to be really fucking easy to figure out. But I love that he tries to throw a shield and he's like... How does Cap do that? That's great. You know, because Happy gets to play Iron Man and Captain America. It's a really cute thing for Happy. Well, and speaking of that, after Peter runs out of web, he picks up some debris to use as weapons. And I don't know if it's intentional that it looks very similar to worthy Cap holding his shield and the hammer, but that's definitely the images that I got and what I'm going to tell everyone it should be meant to mirror because that's a really beautiful moment in the film as well. I love how well he uses his webs up until then though. It's really always cool for me when you see Spider-Man using his webs like to make actual webs and catch things. And then we get to Peter confronting Beck and the illusion hallway. I think for my money, part of my frustration is that I don't know that the spider tingle being the thing that comes through and saves the day, that Peter finally gets his bearings. I don't know that that comes through the way it's supposed to and highlights that that's how the movie ends. I feel like it's a little slopped toward that. Yeah, I think I could have used a little bit more seeding on his Peter Tingle being broken to have it suddenly be like A-OK -okay at the climax of the film and have him focusing his powers being the thing that helps save the day and blah blah blah. Like I just I feel like they might have lost that plot thread. They might have let it get away from them a little bit in the process. Overall, it's a pretty okay sequence, though. I enjoy the action, and I enjoy the actual film itself. 
we get Edith confirming to Peter that all illusions are done and Quentin Beck is actually dead. But, you know, I I don't know. I feel like that could still be undone and that we could see more of that character. Yeah, especially because, not to jump too far ahead, but one of the twist endings is that Beck uses footage from just before he dies. I don't understand how Beck does that. Somebody else had to edit that footage together for Beck, or Beck's still alive, or the illusion wasn't off. Something's going on there. We see Riva grab some stuff before he runs off, but I don't necessarily believe that that character has the gumption to do something like this on his own, and... I don't necessarily want to see this guy become the next MCU supervillain. That doesn't feel like... I'm Final Cut Pro! You may think you know what happened, but I'll edit it! It's just not quite threatening, and the fact that it comes on that really lovely Spider-Man MJ swinging cross town sequence kind of bothers me, and I don't know. I really like this movie. It's just there's things about these two post credit scenes that so invalidate the film and give the film more meaning that in a way that doesn't feel like it connects to the rest of the film. Well, let's get the less explosive reveals out of the way. We have MJ revealing that she likes Peter. We have Ned and Betty breaking up. We have Happy and May, you know, explaining whatever that situation is. And those are the more minor ones that still completely affect how you watch the entire movie. Because, you know, there's that fear watching this movie thinking that Betty and Ned are going to, like, have some sort of horrible gendered something break up and, like, it's just going to be so tedious. But I love that they're friends and, like, mature. I think that's a really cute, positive thing to portray in a film like this, especially juxtaposed with whatever's going on with the adults. I said it in the first half and I'll say it here, like, all of it's weird. May, it's weird if you're having a fling with the friend of and and employee of your nephew's dead idol to be so cavalier about having just a fling with this man who is going to have to be in your lives probably for a while. Where's your head at? Can we get like some more on May and like can someone check on her? I I I I I just I don't know what's going on. Like I said, I think they're just trying to have fun and not think too much about what it plays into with the film. They just want their cute bits. And we talked a lot about how these writers come from comedy and specifically the comedies that they come from are a bit surrealist. So it's not too surprising that they're relying on this sort of sliding scale of reality to balance out the humor and the realism. Yeah, but also it's sometimes just true to life. So I guess then we can turn our attention to the final two scenes that change so much about this film and the MCU as a whole, I would say. So first we get that unbelievable surprise cameo from J.K. Simmons reprising the role of J. Jonah Jameson from DailyBugle.net with the startling revelation that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and that he is responsible for the death of Quentin Beck and holy shit holy shit as nico even pointed to so much about the fact that you know this is potentially what beck recorded in his last moments unless it's not his last moments and it's part of the ruse i don't even and another part of it for me because i think the only thing i didn't talk about was jk simmons as j jonah jameson here he's stylized much like alex jones 
And my real issue with that is J. Jonah Jameson is always supposed to walk the line between villain and well-intentioned. And Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist who incites hate. And that's terrifying. So I think this is a very different direction for J. Jonah Jameson and one I don't think you can conveniently walk back from. I completely agree. I got the same immediate perception of this portrayal of J. Jonah. And, you know, I think that there is a case to be made for this not being too far outside of his character and for trying to show the more dangerous side of what J. Jonah Jameson does and what he represents. I really hope they have some sort of plan, though, potentially to walk this back or just, you know, to do something with it. Because the shock reveal, you know, the effect of that only lingers for so long. And then we need there to be some kind of payoff from it. Not just, you know, the identity reveal, which, holy shit, but bringing J. Jonah Jameson in entirely. And then after that, after everything, and you have to consider Marvel movies, the credits are like 10 minutes long. So if you really have to pee, there'd better be something good at the end of this. And this is one of those times where there definitely is. I can't think of the last time that a post credit scene was this vital to the plot of a film i guess ragnarok to know that that was going to come because even the captain marvel post credit scene where we see carol being called in you know if you didn't see that you can kind of assume that somehow they called her at least based off of the infinity war tag and even then the captain marvel tag doesn't change captain marvel as a film it adds to it it expands on it it moves her narrative forward but this literally changes the entirety of two characters that had been in Spider-Man the entire time. This isn't a minor change, this is a major change. Even if Nick Fury was in Talos's ear in an earpiece the entire time, Nick Fury was somewhere else, which means there's an entire second story that Nick Fury can have been in. And frankly, the implication is that he wasn't in Fury's ear. Talos says that he is calling in about completing a mission last week, and Fury barely pays attention to it. He seems incredibly checked out on his little holographic Tahitian vacation in space. We don't have any confirmation, once again, on a future for Nick Fury or where this character might be going, but this scene has me very excited and certainly added an unbelievable twist to Spider-Man Far From Home, proving at the end of the epilogue of this 23-film saga that they can still pull twists and surprise us and get us excited for what comes next. You know, coming back to MCU.html, in my head I was like, oh, we gotta get back to the old format, but the old format involved talking about what we remembered about the next film at the end, and we only came back to do Endgame and Spider-Man, so there wasn't a whole lot of next film to talk about. That said, we have an incredible finale coming up for MCU.html, filled with special guest stars, information, rankings, lists, and more. It's been an amazing time, and I'm really excited to celebrate not just with Kevo, but with a number of our contributors and even fans who wanted to be a part of this sign-off. So until then, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevoreilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or over on the Facebook page for this lovely show, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Official HTML. You can also find me and Nico and our co-workers from The Demon Hotel, Taryn and Tori, making super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories over at KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can all the folks find you? You guys can find me at KidRideComics.com, like Kevo said, and all over this amazing network on shows like X's for Podcasts, where we talk about the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, or Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend. Don't forget to check me out over on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and my music project over at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, where you might hear a pretty exciting announcement if you live in the uh, Northeast area and you want to check something out later this year. You can also see us at FlameCon. NYCC, and even FIT's Diversity Expo. Keep a look at our webpage, the Facebook group for HTML, to find out more. All right, until we come back to say goodbye to this big ol' CU, we'll see you. The whip. Uh-huh.